Capital City Podcast, back in your ear hole, baby. I'm your main man, Capital J, alongside my main man, DL Glass. Yep. So first off, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is Andre Willis, a man who admittedly got caught out there, but he has a very interesting story, and I don't even want to step on that. I want to let you tell your story, man, from the, from the beginning. You know what I'm saying? You got the, you got the floor right now. And, um, you know, tell the people who you are, what happened, because it's very, okay. very interesting story. Okay. Uh, I heard you did your research on it, too. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. As soon as um, as soon as we found out, we started doing research. So we're gonna we're gonna probably ask you a few questions along the way. Okay, it sounds sounds good. So that it lets you know there ain't nothing made up. It's a true story. Um, uh, since you uh did the research, I'm glad that you did. Um, nothing is made up straight from the hip. Um, actually, I was a square in high school until early adulthood. Um, how I got started, uh, my mom and my grandma bought me a, well, invested into a janitorial service. So we owned our own janitorial service. And um, of course I had several contracts and that's how I was making my living. But I let my god sister borrow my car and she wrecked it and totaled it out. So it came that I lost all my contracts, and I actually became homeless. Oh, and, yeah, and uh, her husband, which is a very close friend of mine, we tell everybody we cousins, but I actually met him met him uh, playing Little League football. And um, he came to me one day, um, after I got my eviction notice and he was asking the bar, you know, I had about $500 cash back then. That was back in 87. So, uh, he, uh, came to me and asked me to borrow $250. And he told me he'll bring me $50 back in 30 minutes. So, uh, I took the chance, gave him the 250. He brought me $300 back. And um, he said, "Well, I need to borrow the two fifty again, and I'm gonna bring you another hundred. But this time, another fifty. I'm sorry, and this time, you can go with me." I want to ask so, one question. What? Yes, sir. What year was this? This was in '87. Okay, we like to time stamp everything. Right. So that's 1987. So um, I rode with him, and uh, he went and bought eight ball at the time. He's buying eight balls. And um, he gave me 300 back right away. So I'm like, man, I done made $100 in an hour. I've been slaving doing contracts and definitely wasn't making $100 an hour. So back then, you know, $100 was you know, pretty decent money back in that 87. <laughs> so, um, we started buying um, eight balls, and we would stack them up. Of course, we would cook some up into crack, but uh, we would split half and half in crack and powder. So we were going to this little city called Buford, Georgia, and um, we would go up there every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And we 
we'll buy an eight ball or, you know, as the money grows, we got up to like a quarter ounce. So we were selling that on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So, um, Hey, can, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you, could you answer a question for me? Um, yeah. so yeah. because of, um, like the conversation about the uh, music and crack, um, mm-hmm. what's going on musically in Atlanta at this time? And you'll, you'll figure out why I'm at, I keep asking that same question, uh, throughout the podcast, but what was happening musically in Atlanta? Well, we didn't have hip hop in Atlanta back then. It was, it was, it was mainly, uh, hip hop started in New York. So back, back then it was New York hip hop. Of course you had, um, um, a little NWA and, you know, the little West coast stuff. But as far as down South, there was no hip hop down South. V103, V103 only played R&B music. Okay. They didn't play hip hop. So the music scene, as far as that goes, you know, you had the local people um, starting out copying from New York and the West Coast. But again, that's just local. So they wasn't on radio play and all that stuff. They were back then, they were doing what they call mixtapes. Because back then, you know, we had the little cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And uh, then eventually they came out with the CDs. But you could go to this shop called Edward J. Shop and uh, they go and you could buy the mixed uh, tape rap. You know, and they would feature local artists, of course. Um, so. The hip hop scene back then was zero. Right. Back in eighty seven. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, it was it was go ahead. Okay, yeah, yeah. We like I said, we like to timestamp everything, man. So mm-hmm. so you on from the eight ball on to the quarter. Right. So eventually, um as time went on, you know, I started buying quarter keys. And, you know, grew over time. But uh, in 88, I met my best friend. Um, his name was Julius. Uh, Julius was from Detroit. And he eventually became my plug as far as getting my cocaine from. And But, go ahead. Is it- is this a Julius? Is what's what's the last name? Klein. Okay, I remember reading about that. Okay, okay. I'm just a character from the story. Okay. Right. So, um, by Atlanta being my city, he was from Detroit, but I started buying cocaine from him on a regular basis, and he was like man, I can't keep running back and forth like this. So I was like, okay, well, why don't you do this? Why don't we do this? You take the business side and I'll take the street side. And what you do as far as business side, I'm going to invest, but I'm not going to be frequently visiting our clubs because I didn't want to mix the street side with the business side. Because, you know, back then, they would come in and take all your stuff, you know, as far as your 
your your businesses and your assets and all that stuff. Right. So uh, our first club was Dion and Dominique Twenty One. You think this um, this is Atlanta? Yeah, this is in Atlanta. Um, so we invested in that club and opened it up. Uh, at first, it was Dominique's Twenty One. Then it became became Dion's Twenty One because of some. Um, personal uh, slash business bumping heads. Right. So um, um, after Dominique and Dion's, we did um, a club, a jazz club called The Parrot. And, and in the midst of The Parrot, there was a comedy club called Zazu's also. So That's The right. Parrot was there. The, the, the Parrot was very successful and um eventually um we opened the phoenix dance club which was a hip-hop club which was 1992. Mm. now hip-hop was again still local but we reached out and got artists coming from new york we had uh Biggie, uh, P. Diddy did his uh, Bad Boy Sauce lunch party, lunch party from there. Mm. Uh, we broke crisscross there. Lil John at the time was my DJ, which uh, we had several other DJs also. Nice. Um, <laughs> so uh, Lil John was not even legal to be in the club because <laughs> he, he was so young. Nice. This this is the story. These are the stories we want to get down to the nitty gritty with too, man. I love hearing about the early days because cats, you know, this is inspirational for other cats. You know, everybody started off like that in right. the club somewhere. Right. So, um, but John was the DJ, um, and and again, you know, I'm uh, my mind at the time was in the streets. Because the streets was bringing me more money than the hip hop club. Right. right. So uh, once the club was over, Mary J. Blige did our grand opening. We gave her first concert in Atlanta. Mm. Here. What was the ticket on that? Uh, it was a promo. So um, again, Julius at the time was living. Hmm. So I don't know how much was paid because again just like I say I was more on the street right. side at right. that time so um, I was just invested mm -hmm. so um, um, once she did the grand opening which was July of 1992 again just like I say hip hop was not recognized in the city of Atlanta right right uh, so Can we, I jump we, in real quick? That was Mary J. Heavy D. Uh, it was Mary J. and Heavy D. and Kid Capri. Heavy D actually introduced her that night, uh, and Kid Capri was the DJ. Oh, well, nah. I'm glad you. I'm glad you're on the phone, Tyler, because again, just like I say, I wasn't on the club business side. I was again on the street side. So what? What? Once, what was the final? Go ahead. How did they get you? 
um, like how do they sell you over to start investing your money into clubs though? Because it, like you, you know, the scene wasn't there yet. Um, as far as hip hop, I know y'all were having clubs open before you know hip hop came as big as it did. But what what made you? What was? Yeah, that was that's my question. Like, what made you want to okay, invest in so, clubs? So so at the end of the day, back then we have what we call trust and street code. Mm-hmm. So by my partner is on the business side. Now we making good money on the drug side. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, whatever you decide to do, I'm gonna follow and I'm gonna invest. Okay. So again, my mind is still on the street side. The little money that I'm investing into the club ain't nothing. It's just money to clean up. Right. You know, okay, I'm getting a a, a, a cut from a legitimate business. That's all I want to do so I can report it on tax. Yeah, right. So it's strictly business. It was strictly business. Right. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Strictly business. But even though you so, were street, the, your, your upbringing, because I heard you mention earlier that your family had a janitorial service. So, well, they bought me the janitorial service. Yeah. I, I'm sorry that, yeah, they bought you the janitorial service. So the level, uh, I think that's uh, one thing that um, we we sometimes lack is the 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 knowledge um, to succeed at business, and because right. I, I think you're a very uh, smart businessman, and but you keep saying it's, it's street. I understand it is street, but it's it's also operating as a business. That's what you were doing early on, and um, right. that that's the genius part of um, you know everything that happened during that time when crack basically took over our community um, because I'm one mm-hmm. of those people. I say that this was one of the worst times for our people, but it, from a musical standpoint, I think we got some of the best music that will ever be made during that time. And it's continued right. to, to live on. And that's true. So, yeah. I, I, now, I, see, if, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say that, you know, I apply, I, our people for being able to make that happen. That, that just shows that, you know, because, it, you know, like the, the the drug dealer, like all those society calls them the drug dealer. But if you got to the level of, you know, the, the, the feds and stuff back in the nineties or whatever, that, that means that you were operating a business to the point that, you know, you got their attention, not just the IRS, but the FBI. And you was thinking about it about um, being able to report the taxes on your dope money. That's dope. I remember the first time I found that out. Sorry for <laughs> For real, I was amazed at, but you know what I'm saying? Like how to flip money and, you know, invest it in things. It's, it's right. amazing. So so my, my goal was to bring enough revenue legitimately so I can come out of the street. Because again, just like I say, my upbringing um, or my thought in growing up was to have my own business and 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 be an entrepreneur. Yes. So um, investing in the club allowed me to generate money to 
to be able to report on taxes and to help me uh, become more legitimate. However, I had at the time four different women. I got six girls and three boys now. So each one of those women had their own houses. They had their own cars. And plus, I always kept me a loft downtown. <laughs> for myself, for, for, <laughs> for myself. So, so, Stand so if you, you know, won't. it's like if I don't want to be bothered, hell, I just go downtown and and chill out. Nobody right. knows where I'm at. Right. So, um, I took everything more as a business, as you say. Um, although, you know, yes, well, we putting poison out or what have you as society say is poison. Yes, it was. Uh, it, at first it became a survival mode for me to be able to come off of the street. And my mind back then as a youngster was saying, well, if I don't sell it to them, somebody else is going to sell it. So uh, I might as well get the money. Mm-hmm. Which was the wrong way to look at things, but I never had crap or stood on the street corner besides when we went to Buford. But once I got enough money and started buying weight, I never um, sold like dimes and nicks and and twenties and fifties and stuff. I didn't I didn't do that. Right. So my goal my goal was to open enough open up enough businesses to cover my expenses that I had as far as living. So um, going back to the Phoenix, which was the biggest club, well, Dominique's and Dion's was was very big too, but in bringing hip-hop to Atlanta, um, it was the Phoenix. It was the Phoenix uh, Dance Club. Um um, I don't know, Tommy might can elaborate more on it, but the Lumberjack, uh, I think that was part of who, uh, Outcast or somebody. Yeah, I don't know. Either yeah. uh, Leaders of the New School, uh, Yo-Yo, um, uh, Scarface, Bushwick Bill, Sabarank, uh, Rakim, um, Chris Cross, uh, Mary J., uh, yes, the Lumberjacks, uh, the Miney RSO from Boston. Um, they had um, Benzino, didn't it? Yep, uh, <laughs> Benzino, yeah, Benzino was down there because, uh, you know, he used to bring the magazine. He would come. That's who brought Miney RSO Benzino. Um, See, I'm learning else, something uh, new now myself. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I said Shabba Ranks. Um, shoot, and then... Um, um, I think they say Buster Rhymes was there. Yeah, that was Leaders of the New School. Buster Rhymes was in Leaders of the New School at the time. Okay, so that, to, 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 to elaborate on that, um, in the mean, in, in between time of the Phoenix opening and the uh, uh, Leaders of the New School coming to perform at the Phoenix, Julius was murdered in Detroit. Oh, no. Yeah, he was murdered in Detroit. So in order to protect my investment, 
Now I got to step up and be the face of the club. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so Wait, you know how, how many, how much, how much? What was the count? Because we was just at quarter key. So where we at now in the in the selling of drugs? Oh, we up to we up to twenty twenty keys, uh, maybe a week at at, at that time. Um, yeah, well, I was because I was moving all of it anyway. Um, but uh, how I became known as one of the owners, they needed to, you know, what they call what they call it a rider or whatever they call it, where you pay the initial fee up front for them to come and then before they get on the stage you got to pay them the other half yeah tell you everything they want right so um i got the call and say well hey look we still need 20 grand to to make this performance happen this for buster so i huh and who's this for buster leaders of the new school school. gotcha yeah you know i don't know you know, I, I just like I say, I wasn't into all that. So I was like, okay, well, I'll I, I bring the money down now. He say, well, this is when you will get introduced as the owner of the club. So I get my little 20, throw it on my shoulder, walk down, you know, drive down to the Phoenix, walk in the office, put the money on the desk, and say, okay, go pay the people whoever performs. And that's when I was introduced as the owner, one of the owners of the Phoenix. But at that time, you were selling 20 keys a week. Oh, yeah. We was going, yeah. Well, I was, again. Um, and how was, much was a key back then? Back then, a key probably was like 18, 18 somewhere around there. Your re-up was 400000 Yeah. Mm. Basically. Basically, yeah. if you round it off, yeah, if you round it off, yeah. So this, um, is, this is the kind of money that it takes to, you know, you know, I got people always coming to me talking about starting a club and whatnot. I'm like, look, man, take some real money because you got to be able to afford to not win. Right. <laughs> you know exactly. what I'm saying? Just be exactly. honest. And, and, and see, the Phoenix held 3,500 people. And we had state-of-the-art back then equipment, speakers, DJ booths, uh, just, just you know, state-of-the-art stuff. That's why everybody came to the Phoenix, because the Phoenix was nice. You didn't, you didn't have to have a dress code for none of that. Right. That was one of the only clubs in Atlanta that you can come that you didn't have to uh, – have a dress code where you where you come in your sneakers, you can come in your t shirts, blue jeans, yeah, uh, or, or, or what have you. I so went, we kept a we kept a sold out Phoenix stage pack. Let me put it like that. I went and to, uh, we had. Oh, I'm sorry. Go I ahead. Didn't interrupt you, man. I no, went, no, no. Go ahead. Go I ahead. went to Freaknik down there in 1993, and I think um, it was just. I think that was probably that spot we went to. It was just so many people. You couldn't even get close to it. You know what I'm saying? I was like, man, right. no, no need right. to even bother with that. You know? Right, right. <laughs> but- so so I came up with the idea that once we build the clientele up for the hip-hop, 
and uh, generate, you know, the crowd. Uh, we were going to close it down. The first floor was going to be a hip-hop club. The second floor was going to be a jazz club. And the third floor was going to be a strip club. So, uh, but that never happened because, uh, again, the guy that was uh, finding us building um, to lease out, he was uh, a part-time judge, a former Fulton County prosecutor, a lawyer, and an accountant. And um, his wife found out that he was laundering money for drug dealers. <laughs> so she so she asked for a divorce, and he was like, you can get the divorce, but you can't take the boys with you. Mm. So once, once she say, oh, the boys are going with me, if I'm afraid for my life, where do you think I'm going to leave my boys here with you? So he had her killed. He had her murdered. But um, that's a whole other story. But that's that was the fall of the Phoenix because this happened in November of 1992. So we wound up closing the club in uh, April of 93, I believe. But in, in going back, and I don't want to get off course to what, you know, what the subject is as far as the crack and the cocaine epidemic back then and how it was, um, how a lot of things was used. You know, you had a bunch of studios around here. Um, but when you, uh, an artist, once, if you want a record label, I had a record label. Rashida was my Rashida was with a group. She was in high school. How I discovered Rashida was we had open mic contests um, every week at the Phoenix. And they were in high school. So um, we would sneak them in the back door and they would perform. And once they get through performing, they would sneak them back out the back door and take them home. But my thing was Whoever win this open mic contest, I'm going to sign them to my record label, which was Extra Large Records back then. Um, so they wound up winning the open mic contest over the weeks that we did it. So I signed them to Extra Large Records. Now, unbeknownst to me, again, my mind in the street, I'm trying to build my empire, my legitimate stuff, so I can come out the street. I did not know that they were recording at D-Lo Studios, which happens to be Kirk Studio. Hmm. So once I got arrested, Mr. Large had to sit down. So that's when her and Kirk got together, and Kirk put her on the his record label. So from then on, you know, they became a couple. So, um, but yeah, that's a lot of history behind the Phoenix, man, as far as uh, a lot of people that's in the hip-hop industry. Uh, the Phoenix was their uh, platform, mm -hmm. one way or the other. Right. Yeah, one way or the other. Right, mm -hmm. and this is, and as the club is closing, like I said, that, that, that's right around Freaknik 93, the end of the era. Mm -hmm. I come mm -hmm. back from Freaknik with a sampler 
from a group called Outcast that I got out there at um golly, what's that big park that you know um where everybody was hanging out? Sin- Piedmont uh, Piedmont Park. Hmm. I got a Outcast sample from Piedmont Park, and okay, it was probably about Christmas when when they first single dropped later, so. You know, Phoenix Nightclub is right there. It's the candles going out for that as the as the flame for Outcast is getting lit. Hmm. And from that point on, you know, you you associate hip hop with Atlanta. Right. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. So um again, you know, we were the platform because actually uh Ryan Cameron used to come down and do live remote on Friday night from B-103. Mm. And um, we would tell the, 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 the crowd that if you want to hear hip-hop here in Atlanta, call the radio station and request it. Once you start requesting it and they want and, and they know that's what you want to hear, they're going to start playing. Right. So um, just like I say, Phoenix was the platform of hip hop today, and uh, a lot of rappers, uh, the youngsters these days, you know, we don't they they don't know the history of what it took to actually get hip hop started in Atlanta. It took a lot of work to be able to do that. We're not saying that hip hop wouldn't be in Atlanta today, but the start of hip hop started at the Phoenix. Hey, oh, definitely, because you got to remember, Illegal was out. Illegal was signed to Dallas, Austin. Y'all so stupid. Highland Place Mobsters, oh, all they, of them. They were dope. Uh, illegal was dope. Yes. All <laughs> of them came out. The, all of them came out of the, out of the Phoenix and out of Atlanta at that time. That was that was the movement at that time. Illegal, Highland Place Mobsters, um, um, ABC yeah, they, they was around. Remember, Eric Sherman had Eric Sherman had left New York and moved to Atlanta, opened up that rim shop. Right there in, in Atlanta, right around the corner from the Phoenix on uh, I can't remember which street he was on, but he had a rim shop right there in his studio yeah. was in the basement. So that bought a presence. Right, and Outcast Studio was Bobby Brown's studio, it was Boss Town first. They got it from Bobby Brown. So what became St. Onya was Boss Town first. That was Bobby Brown's studio because he was running around Atlanta at the time with Whitney Houston. So back then it was Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown was the biggest things running around town. Then there was Dallas Austin, of course. He was a, 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 a yeah. going on. Then L.A. then came. La Face Records came there because Rowdy and and uh, So So Def was there. Then La Face came. La Face yeah. came, uh, or all of them came right about the same time because you got Dallas and then did TLC's records. Uh, um, hat to the back. Um, um, what about your friends? All of these is like is that is, is Atlanta produced records? Yeah, yeah. Hey, I I got a question for you, Andre. Um, how you later later on in life they say hindsight is twenty twenty. Do you wish you could take it back and not kick Bobby Brown out standing on the couch? Oh no, he still had to go. If 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 we repeated it today, he his ass <laughs> excuse my friend. Well, his ass got to get out of there. Because I don't care how much money. I don't care how I had money, so I don't care about how much money a person is has or spending. 
uh, <laughs> in a club, but you're gonna respect my stuff. That was Bobby you, Brown, you're not, man. You're, yeah, you <laughs> know. But also, the Phoenix was very plush back then for a hip hop mm-hmm. club. It was, it was, it was the, it was because on um, Tuesday nights or Thursday nights, it was, it was a um, gay club in there, so it was mm-hmm. very plush already. The club was laid out. There was, there wasn't a club as nice, and then it had a lot of space. I mean, she, Ice Cube was there. Ice Cube been to the club. I remember the night Ice Cube was there. So it's, it, everybody came through there, and everybody had to behave. We we had real street dudes that worked there, and so you, you were required to behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and, and to touch on the, 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 the gay club, yeah, uh, they were they were back doing having gay nights in there, uh, which Julius allowed that. But once I took over, you know, I say, hey, look. Ain't no more gay stuff going on in here. Uh, you need to find you a club or a building to uh, take that gay stuff down the street, around the corner. I don't care what you do. Uh, I'm gonna give you the I'm gonna give you the money to go do whatever it is that you want to do. But we're not just, gonna have that here because same, uh, a separate establishment for it. Right, because you know uh, people. A lot of people, and I was very homophobic back then, too, because I'm like, hey, now, you know, I don't want to be drinking out the same glasses that they drinking out of. I say, until you find your building, you got to serve out a plastic cup. You don't use these glasses. Oh, you was but, hardcore uh, with it. Okay. Oh, yeah. You got you got 30 days to find your building and, and take that on down the street. Well, we're but, glad that you... Uh, but, but, you know... Again, I'm a youngster. Right, right. So, and I'm in the street. So, you know, I wouldn't with none of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, uh, and I'll be honest with you, when he went and found a spot, he went down Peachtree, right down there in Five Point, and found a, a space to run his, his gay club. And actually... It only held maybe 250, 300 people. But guess what? That gay club was generating money. just as much money as the Phoenix was. Right. I, I, I bet it was. It. Yep. Yes, sir. It, <laughs> it, it really it really was. Right. But um, and that has got- his perspective on the whole, uh, that audience. Because you know, a lot of people had a, 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 a feeling about that audience, but soon learned that there was money in that crowd too. You just had to know it all became about marketing, promotions, and collecting money and running a business. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so as I got older, I say, well, who am I to judge? I'm still, I'm still, uh, I, I'm not going to say against it. I'm not with it, but you know. To each his own, right. you know. I don't. I don't turn my nose up at them uh, or nothing. As long as you respect me and don't disrespect me, I'm gonna do the same with you. Indeed. You know. But that's just your, that's just your choice of life. If that's your choice, then it's your life. It's not mine to judge what you do. Well, I got so a, I, I respect that. Well, I got a, I got a question for y'all. Coming into a market where. Like, you know, before y'all brought uh, a real a real hip-hop club into the scene, 
you know, I know you had resistance coming into the market. Um, I come from a smaller town in North Carolina, but my dad had a few clubs and I just saw, I've seen people open up clubs in places that didn't have clubs before or whatever. And there's always mm-hmm. some resistance, You maybe from the police, maybe from the community, or maybe from other club owners who don't want to, you know, tell me about some of the resistance y'all had in, in getting a hip-hop club started, especially. Well, I can't even say, to be honest with you, I can't even say that it was any resistance because, again, um, we had this judge that was finding the building. Um, Don't question. Ex prosecutor. Like they were trying to spread tow cars, so it was it was politically correct in Atlanta, and mm-hmm. uh, the resistance in hip hop uh, was more so uh, about the police department and and where you were located. Where the Phoenix was located was in an industrial area. Oh, so uh, okay, and projects okay. was on the back side. Yeah, it, it, was on the back side. So we wasn't bothering nobody. There was no noise. And then also back then we didn't have no problems because the owners right. were, were the owners were real street dudes. Right, so, right. People we, knew not we, to bring that. <laughs> yeah, everybody knew the streets knew as quiet as everybody tried to keep it. The streets knew what was really going on. So there was very few real problems in the clubs right. early back then. Right. Right. Mm. It's very cheap. And, and and the rap music back then, you know, was totally different from the rap music today. It was fun. It was, it was cool. positive. Peace of God. You know, we was all five percent. Or women and 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 you know, spending your money and Right. Just having a good time, but but today, youngsters really act out the rap music that they listen to. Right. They don't mm-hmm. take it as they don't take it as entertainment. They think it's cool because you know we got rappers today, and again, I look at it as as as, as entertainment. They talk about popping pills, drinking lean, uh, running around with the AKs and stuff like that, which is gangster rap. But the youngsters today, they want to act that out because they think that that's what they're supposed to be doing. Right. You know, we didn't we didn't have all of that like on black crime murders uh, every day. I could turn on the TV right now if the news is on. First headline thing is somebody done got shot uh, downtown or somewhere in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so. Well, um, some some say that that's a product of what was. And that's the era that we were talking about that influenced a lot of what's um, going on today. And I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. Uh, not just from, you know, a social standpoint, but the arts, too. And the music, and um, this it, it goes right back to what I was saying about um, the I guess the in, in my opinion the the, the best music or um, the the golden era of hip hop happened during the times that we we're talking about, 
and everything is a direct has a direct relation to that and that's how right. powerful um it was and is and you know the the um the the financer of it and the, the financer and started about. started grabbing the microphone and that's when things started changing you yeah. know what i'm saying but, okay the, what, what, the dude okay. with the money used to be behind the scenes he finds some talent in the street and put right. his money into it and now what you got right. is the people with the money right. just like, I'm just going to rap myself, tell stories. And back in the day, every now and then you find a talented guy who tells stories about the game, but you also had all right. these other people telling these other stories. Right. Now everybody right. telling stories about the game. And it's like, yo, it, we, they ain't looking for talented people. They just think if, if I'm in the game, I'm supposed to rap about the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. right. I agree. I agree. And, and, and the, the, dealers, the dealers took the, like you said, I don't know if you remember, we talked about this and you said that the, once the dealers stopped investing money into the craft, that's when the that's, record label. That's when the record label said, well, this is all we going to sell now. When, right. when when we had dealers and, and true drug money behind all these labels and stuff, there was a lot more variety in the music that was being fed to the community mm -hmm. because- right. Because we understand that we're more than one thing. But right. all that's being sold to us now is sex, drugs, and guns. Mm -hmm. and, and the sad part is, is that when, I, you know, you're talking about the, the early 90s, 92, 93. I'm DJ too. I've been DJ for years. Tell them how long, nothing. Tell it was them how nothing long to see. Been yeah, I've been DJing for thirty some years, you know, <laughs> but it was nothing to see somebody get killed during that time period at the club. That happened a lot, you know what I'm saying. But mm -hmm. the, what these cats don't know is that the drug selling that was going on then is it was so much more of it, but it was less people rapping about it. Now people, everybody's rapping right. about it, but the mm -hmm. streets ain't on right. fire like they used to be. I remember times I couldn't get down the street because so many crackheads, they, they have a line waiting to buy crack right. that's holding up traffic. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Right. You don't see that anymore. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> but now everybody's talking about, like, that's all we doing. Right. And it's like, and when, when that was all that was happening in the hood, that wasn't the only rap you heard. Right, absolutely. Right. And that's now right. that it's not out there anymore, that's all people talking about. And you don't even you open your door, and you don't see no crackheads no more. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> right. they out there, but it's not like it used to be. It used to be zombie land out here. Yeah. Now it's like that. We yeah. Open I your agree. Ways. Right. I, I, I agree. And that's all they can well, talk about. Right. Um, from a from a musical standpoint, I always try to tell people to let's take a moment and look at something. And if you look, the the music that's selling is a direct reflection of the drug that's selling. Now, how do I qualify that statement? If you remember, in the 60s, we had acid, right? And we had the flower children. We had weed, and then we had the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. Then we had crack, and we had hip-hop. Then Lean came in, and look at the mumbling the the the, the <laughs> slurred speech 
No, I'm, 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 no. Um, I, I didn't look at this. Hey, listen, and, I'm a, hey, Tommy, 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 I'm only uh-huh. laughing because I did a whole show about yes. this. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, I swear I'm, I'm yes. laughing because you're going, like I talked about how drug, whatever drug is popular, yes. listen to the music. When cocaine <laughs> was hitting, right. everybody right. listened and to fast-ass disco. You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. The, when, when cocaine was popping, disco was, was on fire. And what happens now is corporations have taken it over and they have a specific agenda. Mm-hmm. See, when drug dealers was running it, their only agenda was to get out of selling drugs and start right. making legal money. Mm-hmm. A corporation's agenda is to hold and oppress our people down. So now we have, there's less money. There's less money in the music business because when I was out there, I didn't drive nothing below a luxury car. I had the, the, the cars I was driving in L.A. It was my $300 a day. I was renting Porsches and, and, and Vipers. Hmm. People that work at record companies now are driving Toyotas. I used to look at them and go, I would be embarrassed to drive that vehicle. <laughs> I, 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 I rode with record. you a couple of times, Tommy. <laughs> right, out, right. out there. As a matter of fact, won't you in Miami? Yep. If I recall correctly, you <laughs> said, how can I be down? And you said, Tommy, I missed my flight. I'm screwed. And I walked up to the counter and said, put this man on the next plane and put my American Express up there and said, send him home without even thinking about it. People can't do that today. They can't walk up there and spend money the way we could spend money in the night that don't exist. Yeah. So uh, that's because of a corporate agenda, though. If you look at it, I made the statement that the prosecuting attorney who arrested young Sugger and, and tried to give him a RICO charge should also charge Kevin Lyle and Leo Cohen. Because if you're saying Say it he, again. Was furthering, he was furthering, they called it furthering, mm-hmm. and they said that, that it was on a video, and I would argue that he didn't pay for the video. The label did. He didn't distribute the video. The label did. He didn't put the record up on Spotify. The label did. And they also so he again, to me... Right. It's definitely okay. He's a victim because no one is pointing out the fact that we know in the meeting they said, we need something like this. You know what I'm saying? Like when they played right. the record, they said, could you do more of this? Right. They could They could have very easily said, let's do less of this. Let's not have you throwing gang signs. But they promoted it. So I think if she's going to charge Young Thugger, she should charge the president as well. Because I saw uh, Kevin Lyle going there and say we were partners. I saw Kevin Lyle say, our money, his money is my money. I saw Kevin Lyle say, I've been knowing him since he was a child. Then I looked back and saw the young sucker was like 16 or 17 when it started. 17 right. years old, 18 max when it started. So now you mean to tell me that an 18-year-old got a record deal and now y'all charging him? The gang didn't exist when he got signed to the label. Remember what Tupac said? I didn't have a record until I had a record. <laughs> till I made a record. <laughs> right. So you mean he didn't have the Young Slime Gang when it started? He got in a record company and then started the Young Slime Gang. Right. That seems suspicious to me. Right. Hmm. Right. So this shit lock up some of the label execs that allow R. Kelly to operate too, huh? Hey, drop a bomb on that. <laughs> <laughs> they always, you know, we knew. I, everybody, everybody at the label. That was not a secret. Everyone knew about from the day. The Aaliyah situation where everyone in the music business, I refuse to work sexy. They tried to send me a check to work R. Kelly, and I turned it down. I've never worked an R. Kelly record. I've never even been to one of his shows because I knew. And I'm not like a psychic. I didn't know nothing special. You just I just knew it. what had happened. Right. 
And, and I said my daughter was that age. Remember, I got my daughter in Texas that, that was the same age as Aaliyah, so I didn't want to deal with her. And other people chose to look the other way or do whatever. It was not a secret. The industry knew. Hey, well, honestly, man, I, it blew my mind when the videotape came out and nothing happened, man. Right. And 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 similarly, the same thing when Chris Brown beat Rihanna up like that. Like I'm like, yo, nothing. Like I thought, I thought he was gonna yeah. go to jail and the world was gonna stop and we never hear from him again. You they know just, what I'm saying? But hey, society, just society got a short memory there. nowadays. You know, they just throw breezy out there with R. Kelly like that though. Hey, I'm just saying, man. All right, Kelly. All right, Kelly having sex with girls and punching them in the face. It's 50 cent one hand, half a dollar another. Well, I, I, I can't go that hard on Breezy because Thank you. I remember them saying that Rihanna was from Barbados or one of them islands and that she had an attitude and liked to fight dudes. So, oh, word. Uh, yeah. Yes, and then, if you remember, Chris Brown bit her on the face. I said, how did he find himself biting her on the face that they were going to land again? It's only mm-hmm. one way. And that's because she rolled over in his lap and was in front of him fighting him, and he couldn't hit her because they in a Lamborghini. So she jumped in the front seat with him. The only thing he could do was lean forward and bite her face to get her off of him. I would argue that she probably was on him beating him down because she quickly said, let it go. Everybody let it go. And I blame the label again because what was they going to the Grammys with no handlers? What was Chris Brown driving himself and Rihanna to the ground? Right. How, he, was that like, was ne- he like 18? If, in the 18? 90s, they never would have let no rapper, no artist drive another artist. $2 million artist mm-hmm. driving themselves? That <laughs> that didn't add up to me. That was, that was a, a recipe for them. Hey, well, you know something, man? We we got sidetracked into the music, but my man DL, he did a lot of research on, on, on you, Andre. And you know what I'm saying? We we talking talk for a couple of weeks now because we got because um, we didn't get to do this last week. And you brought up uh-huh. the, the judge, yeah. uh, the 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 lawyer, the person that helped you um, find the buildings and all that, keep things legit. And rental uh, cars, right? Mm-hmm. And and I know that we're a music show, but you know that is part of your story, man. It's definitely a part of your story, and we didn't want to skim right over it like that. Oh, it's no, been... no, no. I'm open to talk about whatever, you know. Um, I want my story to be, you know, uh, even when I did another podcast, I want my story to be educational, and and, and, I, and, and I don't want it to be glorified because there's nothing to glorify about the street life. There's nothing to glorify you know, um, when you're in the streets, you have to do street things, and 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 it's nothing to be glorified of doing bodily harm uh, to another individual. But you know, sometimes it, it goes that way, um, and you know, I look at it as a trap. I think it's a trap for us and what I mean by if you drive down the street or and you see uh, drug pushers because you got drug dealers and then you got drug pushers you know that's just like you got drug lords and you got their workers 
Right. So you in, in America, you got drug dealers, and then you got drug pushers. That means that they're on the street pushing drugs. Right. So um, when you drive down the street, that's all you see is us. Mm-hmm. You don't. You don't. You don't see too many other nationalities pushing. Uh, pushing. Right. Okay. So. Who 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 allows the drugs to come over? Yeah. And, and 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 I'm not classifying just white people because the government is is uh, consisted of white, it's black, very diverse. Uh, it's diverse. Yes. But but um, and 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 I was talking to. Um, one of the co-hosts of the, of the podcast, and you know, we get caught up in saying the white people, this, the white people, that. It ain't just the white people. It's the ones. It's us that think like the white people. So <laughs> you, you can't you can't just classify and say, oh, the government is is it's the white folks. No, no, well, no. The white no. folks came up with the system. The, well, wait, the white let me folks ask a came. Question. They came up with the system. Right. They came up with the system to put those got... in place to make this system work. There That's you what... go. Yes, absolutely. There you go. I'm with you. Absolutely. There you go. There you go. Can I ask I mean... a question? Yes. Yeah. So my question would be you saying not to glorify, but you talking about your we up was four hundred thousand. So, and that's just rounding up. If your we up was four hundred thousand, and you doubling or tripling your money, that means you're making almost eight hundred thousand dollars a week. And you are trying to tell us in Radio Land, in Podcast Land, that that's nothing to glorify. And you expect a person who's at home right now, they can't pay their electric bill, to say, "I'm gonna miss that eight hundred thousand." And and that's not that's not that's not realistic. So when you say the the bad side of it, what was the downside? Because I don't hear no downside. So what a dude killed his wife and tried to set you up. You didn't go to jail for murder. So so what well, happened? I got to locked you up. I got locked up as a result of the murder. But but you went to feds time. When I talk to people, they say the feds is like boys camp. I I never been, so I'm going. You oh, went to no, boys no, camp. No, man. You no, make no, eight hundred thousand dollars. It all depends on where you going. Now the camp, yeah, that's 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 a boys' camp. The camp is a boys' club. Yeah, of course. No fence, no control movement. But when you get into the mediums and the penitentiaries, ain't no ain't no boys' club. I was in a medium in Lompoc. I still had to wear my boots to the shower. Hmm. Now, who want to wear these boots to the shower? Take your boots off, put your shower shoes on, shower up, and then put your boots back on to walk back to your bunk or your dorm or your cell. You can't even wear, you can't even be comfortable watching TV. You got to be strapped at all times watching TV. You got sections, you got sections now that you can and can't sit in. You got, you, you got, um, um, different sets. Okay, you got like in prison, in federal prison, you got inmates from all over the country. So, oh no, you can't sit right here. This is uh, North Carolina State. 
Oh, oh wow. you got to go over there and sit with the Georgia boys. Or you can't sit here because this is uh, 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 the blood table or the grip table. Or, uh, yeah, you got to go over there and hang out with your homeboys over there. When you go to the weight pile, oh, you can't go out and work out with the Mexicans and, and, and whoever you think you can work out with. No, you can't do that. You got to work out with your sex. Right. Whether if, if you're not a game member, then you better go find you some homeboy. And when I was in Long Park, it was five people from the state of Georgia with 19 to 2,000 inmates, 1,900 to 2,000 inmates on the compound. It's five from Georgia. So guess what? Okay, well, so it's five from Georgia. Okay, who from Virginia? Who from the South? Right. <laughs> That's who you hang with. That's who you hang with. Right. But now, if a war break out between the Bloods and the Latin Kings or the Bloods and the Pisces, the Pisces are the are, are, are Mexican set. Oh, you better go jump. You better go help your people. Oh, we all people now. But <laughs> on an ordinary day, we ain't cool. Right. But if you get into it and you don't help out, then guess what? You better check yourself into the hole, which is the shoe, which is segregation. Because if you don't, they gonna kill you. Yeah, you're gonna be marked. You're gonna be marked. So that boys club stuff, yeah, you got you got boys club prisons, but they count. Ain't nobody singing songs so about now, that though. Huh? Ain't nobody singing songs about that though. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. You know, you see you see if you look at a documentary or a movie, all you see is the, the, the drug dealers eating steak, lobster, drinking wine, driving Lamborghinis, Mercedes, and and, and, and uh, Bugattis, and all that stuff. You see all that. So everybody, man, I want to live that life. But what comes behind that life? What comes behind that life? Uh, can you really take the pressure when them people tell you, okay, you're going to do a life sentence. And when you go to the feds, when the feds tell you what you're going to do, it ain't like the state, but they try to scare you. The feds got a guideline. Mm -hmm. They got a guideline that they go by. And wherever you fall up under that guideline, that's what time you face it. It's mm -hmm. automatically set. It's automatically set. And you do it every ounce like of it. You do 85% of it. Wow, and it ain't like the state where you can go in. Oh, give me ten, do or give me twenty, do ten, or give me ten, do five. No, whatever you get is eighty-five percent because there's no parole in the federal system, and they will shift you so far away from home. They supposedly got where you're supposed to be within a five hundred mile radius of your residence. Oh wow! But but that uh, 500 miles, that's still a long way. Yes. But now just say that prison is full. Oh, well, we can't send you there. I was 3,000 miles away from home. Right. And how long were you gone? Um, well, I, I've done two prison sentences. I've done uh, the first one was nine years. Mm -hmm. um, 
I went. I started out in Talladega, Alabama. I even I read something coming. Oh, that's a that's a that's a boys' camp. It ain't no boys' camp because you never know what the next man may wake up and have some on his mind, and he may snap. Right. And what was the nine you years for? Uh, drug conspiracy. Conspiracy to distribute five hundred or more keys. Drug right. conspiracy. So right. a lot of people look at, oh, he had a big drug, but see, you got categories that you fall up under. Mm-hmm. It's different from a conspiracy because you're looking at an automatic 10 years mandatory minimum for a drug conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So um, um, I actually had two cases which they ran them concurrent. So I had one 10-year sentence running concurrent. Hmm. But how I wound up doing a little over nine years is because one case was uh, in '93. The next case was in 90, January, February of '94. So even though they ran them concurrent, I still had an overlap in the sentence. Right. Because you still got to do eight and a half years. So whichever one that you got uh, last, say like you got two, two 10 year sentences, but they fall six months apart. Instead of doing eight and a half, you're going to do nine years. Right. Because you still got to do eight and a half on that controlling sentence. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so I did that. I, I did Talladega and then I did Yazoo City, Mississippi. Uh, but, the thing of it is, is uh, if uh, if you um, when I first got to Yazoo City, they had people waking people up in they bunk early in the morning with a mop ringer ringing their head off. But this one, this one, your first time going to prison or jail, was it? Yeah, that was the yeah, first time. That was my first time. But, that was my first time actually doing time. Right. I caught two little state cases, which was cell uh, cases, which um, um, were turned out to be, um, I got probation for it. Mm-hmm. I got probation for it. So, right. uh, Were you prepared yeah. to go to prison? I mean, because you went I from mean, a couple of eight balls to... Eight hundred thousand, <laughs> like like this. At some point, you know, you must have thought or knew that them people might have been watching you. Like, what is that the case? Well, this, well, well, this is the thing. You know, when you're in the street and you're making money, you would think that okay, everybody thinks that they doing stuff on the down low. You mm-hmm. doing, you know, long as on. Uh, get busted driving down the street or as long as I don't uh, sell to an undercover or a CI, uh, don't talk on the phones, you know, and get caught up on a wiretap or what have you. See, that's estate mentality thinking. Mm-hmm. But the feds got that conspiracy where if you got two or more people telling on you, you're going to jail. Mm. Okay. So, um, I had got heads up because 
uh, one of the guys that uh, I had a stepfather who had plenty of women and there was plenty of kids uh, involved. Uh, one of one of the children got caught up in the federal system first, oh, and wow. the, yep, the girl called me. She was like, oh, "He's going to the grand jury on you." And they finna die you. You know, the first thing I say was, shoot, they ain't got nothing on me. I ain't, they ain't, I ain't been on no phones and they ain't sold to nobody. I don't know about this hearsay stuff as far as the feds go. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, going back to Young Thug, uh, yeah, we got, he, he has a state case as far as the RICO Act. Mm-hmm. But how do you think Young Thug got indicted? They didn't catch him. Hmm. Somebody told on him. Right. right. Mm-hmm. But now, follow what I'm saying, and you're going to say, Dre told me this. Watch the feds come in and pick that case up because oh. the feds have hearsay. Mm-hmm. The state does not have hearsay. Hmm. So, they they went back and reindicted him, gave him some more charges of uh, firearms and drugs. Because when they re- arrested him, they found the drugs and firearms. So now, can the state? He fed eligible now. He, he well, he was fed eligible when they picked him up on the RICO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but he's fed eligible now because he got guns and drugs. So mm-hmm. now that brings in the ATF. Mm-hmm. That brings in that brings in the DEA, FBI. Mm-hmm. Now, if his taxes ain't right, well, he IRS had a switch on the gun too, so that's the automatic thing. He had a switch on the gun, so. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and 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 if he's a convicted felon, see, a lot of people that get caught with pistols that's convicted felons, even though the state, the police, local police pull you over, you're a convicted felon with a firearm. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten the uh, ATF going to come in and pick that case up and take you to the feds because it's an automatic five years. Well, he had an automatic weapon, so no, I, 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 pick that, yeah. I, I know what you're saying, but I'm just I'm just giving uh, examples as far as how the feds work. Right. So they'll let the state come and say, okay, well, yeah, we'll let, we'll let them play with it a little bit right. and let them do all the investigations. Okay, now we're going to go on down there and we're going to tell them we're going to take this case and we're going to take all the evidence that they got and we're going to bring it over to the federal. And all them people, uh, the, 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 the local detectives and all that stuff, will wind up testifying in federal court to what they found and this, that, and the other. And the feds going to be able to say, well, he was a convicted felon uh, with a firearm during. The, the commission, commission of a crime. crime. Mm. <laughs> so you mean to tell me that young father can uh, uh, beat the state charge, high lawyers, beat the state charge, walk out the courtroom, and the feds can snatch him? The feds gonna snatch it before it even get that far. <laughs> Watch and see what I tell you. Mm-hmm. But we as people don't think. We don't know because we're not studying. Or the things that we do, we know if we get caught, okay, yeah, we're going to jail. We know that. 
but we don't understand how the system works until we get in there. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want to educate. I want to educate people on how the Fed works, how the federal system works. And they, if they hit him with the RICO, that means they're gonna um, seize his assets too, right? Or at least freeze his accounts. Well, the thing of it is, now he got a good argument simply because. Now, he's a rapper, and he done done concerts. He done got his signing bonus. He done done this, that, and other. So the only way that they can seize assets uh, is for tax evasion, tax fraud, or or if he gets a drug conspiracy or a drug case that will be able to justify that he made those funds from drug dealing. Or gang activity, some new shit they're gonna. Well, start. gang activity. Well, see, gang activity. The feds have already um, said that they would leave stuff in the state court as long as you're not gang related and or connected to a cartel, some kind of way. But see, they got this this gang stuff down, and see when you okay the state. Say, for instance, the state may say, okay, we'll give you 30 years for this RICO Act. The Mm -hmm. Fed has an automatic 30 to life with the RICO Act. And life in the Fed means life. That means you're not coming home. Mm -hmm. You're dying in prison. Ain't no parole in the federal system. So, again, we running around here. We got more. We so gang infested that they do crazy crimes. I ain't gonna say dumb crimes, but they do crazy crimes and not knowing what's gonna come behind it if you get caught, especially when you murdering people and and breaking in people's houses and and bodily harming them. That's where the RICO Act comes in at. Anytime you're doing a commission of a crime and you're doing bodily harm, that's where the racketeering and the RICO Act come. And that's when the feds say, oh, well, yeah, we're going to make sure if you if you do get out, you're going to be so old to where yeah, you, can't. you ain't going to be able to do nothing. Yeah, you ain't doing nothing. Hey, speaking you ain't doing nothing. And, and speaking of getting out, on the flip side of this, like you say, you want your tail to kind of be a cautionary one too. You want, you know, let people know this ain't the way to go. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, even if you make millions and millions of dollars, like you don't come out and still have millions of dollars. So well, what what does life look, what year did you get out and what does life look like for a man who, who amassed, a, you know, a small fortune then coming out? on the other side of a sentence, you know? Okay. All right. So when I got out, um, my stepfather had spent all my money and I came out with $700 to my name that I made in prison. Mm. So I, again, here I am with six children six children getting out 
And now I got to sit down and figure out what I'm going to do. Because now I'm thinking that my money is put up. At least majority of my money is put up. So I don't have to get back in the streets. Right. Or even have the mind frame of getting back in the streets. Who told you that? So I, who who told huh? you? Who, who told you? How the hell did you find out he spent all your money, and what did you do? <laughs> oh, I, what, when I got out, I was like, "Where my money at?" Right. It's gone. Oh, I'm gonna pay it back. How are you gonna pay me? How are you gonna pay me eight hundred thousand dollars back? Mm. How are you gonna do that? Mm. If you spent the eight hundred, how are you gonna pay it back? Because if you were going to pay it back, you would have started been putting something back. Hmm. So, yeah, of course, I was sick. So all my cars, I'm like, oh, my God. I was sick. Yeah, I can imagine. I was sick. I was sick. And, and had to come home to, uh, because I got married when I was in prison hmm. by my, by my, uh, one of my children's mom and it's like I'm like oh my goodness what in the world am I going to do I got a ready made family already Wait, let me clarify you got uh, six kids and how many babies mom it was uh, it was four at the time when I got out you got first. four women and six kids depending on you for their livelihood okay mm-hmm. so um, well, again, I, I was, uh, I think, let's see, when I went to prison, I was 26 years old when I wow. went to prison. So that, that made me get out when I was like 35, so 35, happened, 36. So I, now, wow. hold on, let's pump the brakes for a second. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now, a lot of people, you know, they hear people in our age range talk and, you know, we explain stuff that happened a long time ago, and you got to understand that, you know, we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. We're all young right. men during this time, and all this is happening. Right. These are young young people we're talking about making this money and making these decisions and all of this stuff. So, right. once again, 26 years old when when you went to jail, and you had a nightclub right. and a business worth, you know, Million. I had, we had, yeah, at that time we had, I actually had two clubs at the time because remember, I told you I gave the guy the money to go down the street and get him a gay club. Oh, right. So you still we, pulling in money we, over there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. So I'm in, Are the I'm clubs, in prison the, still. the judge helping with the clubs too? Oh, you say he's still rolling in prison? So the money from the clubs was still legitimate? Right. Right, but I'm still taking care of my responsibilities as far as children go. Okay, just give it to my baby mama. Let her, you know, just give it to her. Let her, you know, because she needs to take care of these kids. Right. You know, so um, that's how I was part owner of the warehouse because the Phoenix shut down and the guy shut down his gay club and opened up the warehouse. For the Olympics. Right. So now we're talking 96, so he, 97. Uh -huh. Exactly. So he still owe me money. 
So part of that is still mine. That's when Tupac came to perform at the warehouse. Right. So, yeah, I was still getting fun while I was in prison, but I wasn't getting the money sent to me. Take care of my responsibilities out there. I'll be all right in here. You send me uh, two, three hundred dollars a month. That's enough for me commissary for me to make my phone call. I'm good. Right, right. Take the rest of that, and y'all, y'all do what you gotta do. So, uh, go ahead. Well, uh, yeah, I was just, um, I was just gonna ask. So, 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 what do you do to rebuild? How how do you rebuild? How you get back to to how you find your comfortable spot after all of this? Uh, once I got out, once I got out, mm-hmm. I went back to the street. Right back. That's how, that's how I got my second, my second set then. Oh. That's how I got my, the first time I did nine years, the second time I did uh, six years, I wouldn't have done eight and a half years, but I entered the drug program and they knocked a year and a half off of my sentence. Right. For taking the drug program. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people talk about Trump. But Trump Uh actually, actually did the federal inmates justice. Because back when I was doing time, we were supposed to be getting 54 days a year good time. Uh But the government was tricking us. And they wasn't giving you a good time until you served after the first year that you served. And then they were only giving us 47 days. So this part of the reform that uh, yep, Kim Kardashian and all of them fought for and the, and the lady yep. that got, right, right. Yep. So now the reform is everybody who was still incarcerated and still had those 20, 30 year sentences, they got the extra seven days times that 20 or times that 30. Now, that don't seem like a long time. Yeah, but it's but, a whole I mean, hell of a uh, lot if you but, wait but, to get out. But it, right. but it adds up. And then he put the programs in that if you take a certain amount of programs, you will get an extra, you get extra days per month going towards your good time. Hmm. So, it's cutting the sentence short. Now that provided that you don't have a violence, any violence in your conviction. So uh, you got different, just like I said, you got different statutes in the federal system. And if you fall under the RICO Act, you're definitely not eligible for those programs. If you got a racketeering, you're definitely not eligible for those programs. If you got a 924C, which is uh, 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 possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, then you ain't eligible for that program. But now if you got a 924A, which is possession of a firearm, then you're eligible for the program. So uh, it's a trip because the feds don't classify guns as violent as a violent crime until you're committing a crime 
with that pistol. So that means that if you got drugs and a pistol together, that's a violent crime. Right. So okay. they're saying your intentions are violent. Right. So, yeah, drugs, drugs is a nonviolent crime, period. No matter how you look at it, drugs is a nonviolent crime. Classified as a nonviolent crime. So that, that that second stint, you learn your lesson after the second stint, huh? Uh, yes. yes. I mean, because because I, you know, I got caught up. I was the only one out of Georgia. My case came out of Fort Worth because the guys that I was dealing with, their phones were tapped. So I got caught up in their conspiracy in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm. Jeez. And that's when they sent me way to Lompoc. They sent me way out there. Like, okay, well, we got something for you. We're going to send you out here. Hold it. I need you to clarify because I'm one of them people that's just listening at home. So you want us to believe that of the two things you did drug-wise, you never got caught on your own. It would have been a judge who tried to kill his wife that brought you down the first time and somebody else's wife that brought you down the second time. Yes. And then... Mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm a young man, I'm saying, well, I did everything right, and you're saying you could do everything right and still end up doing. Oh yeah, you still can get caught years. up. You still can get caught up because you you think you're doing things right, but when your buddy get knocked off and he go to telling on you, or if your buddy phone tap and you talking to him and y'all talking about business, yeah, of course you 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 going down. But everybody talked to the police at some point. It seems like. Well, that's that's what's going. But see, you know, you got people saying, "Okay, well, I ain't no snitch. I ain't this. I ain't that." But then you got a lot of gang members that's getting locked up. That's supposed to be tough on the street, <laughs> but they telling their partners. That's how they knocking all these gang members out. These people not catching these people red-handed. How many? How many? <laughs> cases that you see where they catch a game member in the act. I mean, yeah, you do they do catch them in the act, but the ones that might be done done something three years ago. Yeah. Oh well we're gonna lock you up because you was in a shootout or you shot this person three years ago and we got somebody who can who who gonna identify you or tell that you were with them when this happened or they were with you. Yeah, it's a domino it's effect, happening. right? Domino, domino effect. Yeah, you just get it's one, just get one dude who don't want to, you know, just want a little time off, you know. And everybody telling on each other, man. I got a little information. Everybody telling on each other, and then you got you got them running around separating people. Uh, where you he can't go over here because his co-defendant uh, 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 telling on him, so he can't go to this prison or he can't go to this jail. We got it send him somewhere else. Why is Young Thug way out there in Carl County? And his case is in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. They got him in Carl County, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Which ain't about 20 minutes away from Fulton County Jail. But why ain't he over there in Fulton County where his case is? Well, they said because he he's a dangerous person. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they keep saying. Okay, so so I don't care if it's, if a person is dangerous. I don't give give a darn what jail you put them in. They dangerous. 
So if, even if he's dangerous, they got dangerous criminals down at the Fulton County Jail. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I get what you're saying. So, I'm just, I was being, you know, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, I know. But you, but it's 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 funny for real. But just look at how they do divide and conquer. That whole system is about dividing and conquering. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even if you get out, oh, I don't, I don't fool with him because he a snitch or, or 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 what have you. They turn you against, they they turn you against each other. They separate you so far that you out of sight, out of mind, even with family, children. Because yeah. true, true fact, how many women gonna stick by their man over I give them a year and a half? Yeah. Well, they, I won't ask Because your first bid was 15 years or nine years. Nine years. You had you had four baby mamas. How many of them stuck by you? That's a good question. How about I don't do no answer? Yeah, you ain't got answers. Would that answer the question? Would that answer the question? Would that answer the question? So so tell me this, after after all said and done, how you getting by now? Well, I'm doing a little credit repair. Right. Uh, to make to to make ends meet, I'm uh, also trying to put this uh, documentary together uh, so we can take it to the networks. Um, you know, of course, family members help out. I got you know pretty good family members to help out. Man, that's awesome, man. I tell you, that's what, what my goal. When um, you know, uh, when you get a name, if you got a name for a documentary, let us know. And if you don't, as soon as you do, let us know, man. Give us a release date and all that. We're going to promote heavily, man. Ashes, ashes to abundance. Ashes to abundance. Hmm. Ashes to abundance. Hey, all listeners, pay attention. Ashes to abundance. And that's why, you know, I've, I've already, you know, me and DL, we listened to your whole story and we studied and did a lot of research. And I didn't, I, you know, Tommy also told me that you had documentary coming. And um, so, like I said, I'm glad we talked the way we talked today because you got a lot of story left. And I we do. had a good, I long do. conversation, but we didn't, we're not giving away too much of the good stuff. So the documentary still going to be great. This was the biggest case in federal Georgia history in 1993 to 1995. Right, right, right. So this is, you know, we're talking about a piece of history right here. And yeah. like I said, and it totally ties in to what we always talk about here. So, man, I, I really appreciate you coming and bringing your story to us, man. I couldn't thank you enough. Good times together, man. Fat Tommy, Andre Willis, man, my hat's off to both of you guys, man. Yes, we really appreciate y'all coming through and and burning it down with us on the Capital City Podcast, you know. It's Capital J, main man. D.L. Glass. And we out. This is Capital City with Capital J.